Levin, Honey, and the Altar of God by Rav Chanoch Waxman After opening with the laws concerning the various types of burnt offerings, Sefer Vayikra turns its attention to the mundane meal offering. And when a person offers a meal offering, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil upon it, lay frankincense upon it, and he shall bring it to the priests. Sometimes consisting of raw flour and oil, sometimes baked, sometimes pan-fried, and sometimes deep-fried, the mincha constitutes a way for a person of lesser means to offer something to God. Even he who cannot afford cattle, sheep, or birds can approach the sanctuary, have a portion of his offering burnt on the altar, and have the remainder consumed by the priests as something most holy, Kodesh Kadashim. The Torah closes the laws pertaining to the four standard types of mincha offerings with a warning. Every meal offering that you offer to the Lord, do not make it leavened, chametz, for no leaven nor honey may be turned into smoke as an offering by fire to the Lord. You may bring them to the Lord as an offering of first products, korban reshit, but they shall not be offered up on the altar for a sweet savor. Given the flow of the text until this point, the prohibition of leaven and fruit-based sweets seems rather striking. Until this point, and indeed throughout the remainder of Parashat Vayikra, the Torah details the appropriate objects and methods for the various types of korbanot. No other prohibitions are mentioned. This problem of textual discontinuity possesses a logical and legal dimension as well. Quite simply, one cannot enter the sanctuary and place anything one pleases on the altar. Sefer Vayikra does not just mandate the bringing of certain objects as offerings, but indeed permits those very objects as offerings. Here is Abarbanel's formulation of the problem. Why was it necessary to state that se'or and dvash cannot be offered? For it is known that it is not permitted to offer anything other than that which God has commanded. For example, regarding birds it was commanded to bring from pigeons and doves, and consequently, it was wholly unnecessary to prohibit offerings of chickens and ducks. If so, why was it necessary to explicitly prohibit se'or and dvash? Leaven and honey should be no different than chickens and ducks. Just as the Torah doesn't bother to prohibit the offering of chicken and ducks, so too the Torah should not bother to prohibit the offering of leaven and honey on the altar. All of this leads us to the classic and more philosophical formulation of the problem. In general, Jewish exegetes have questioned not so much the textual exceptionality of the prohibition or its logical legal necessity, but rather its very reason for being. Why does the Torah need to prohibit the bringing of leaven and honey as an offering? What is the inner meaning and philosophical rationale of the prohibition? In the Guide of the Perplexed, Rambam suggests that the offering of leaven and honey to the gods constituted part and parcel of pagan cultic practices. According to Rambam, the Torah prohibited the offering of leaven and honey as part of a programmatic effort to distinguish between idol worship and the worship of God. If so, it is precisely because the offering of leaven and honey constitute recognized and consequently natural practices that the Torah must explicitly prohibit their offering. If a mincha normally involves leaven and sweets, the Torah must dedicate space to defining the parameters of the unique and different mincha appropriate for monotheistic worship. At first glance, Rambam's approach may be attractive. After all, he resolves the problem of the textual uniqueness of the prohibition and provides a theory that explains the prohibition. However, on closer analysis, Rambam's theory provides very little in the way of satisfying explanation. By assuming that the prohibition constitutes no more than a response to contingent circumstances to a particular historical moment in practice, Rambam's explanation empties the prohibition of religious significance and meaning. It is no more than a response to dead and buried customs. Moreover, and more importantly, 
Rambam's historical explanation fails to deal with all of the text. Although not emphasized until this point, the prohibition of Seor and Vash possesses a flip side, a partner of positive commands. In first formulating the prohibition of Levin, Seor, the Torah utilizes the term Chametz. The Mincha cannot be made Chametz. Shortly beforehand, the Torah repeatedly emphasizes the term Matzah, the physical and conceptual opposite of Chametz. The various kinds of baked and cooked meal offerings must be made as Matzah. Similarly, later on in Parashat Tzav, in elaborating upon the procedure of the Mincha and the consumption of a flour and oil meal offering by the priests, the Torah focuses upon Matzah and Chametz. And the remainder of it shall be eaten by Aharon and his sons. It shall be eaten as Matzah, unleavened cakes. It shall not be baked Chametz, with leaven. The Torah not only prohibits leaven, it seems to mandate matzah. Furthermore, the Torah mandates a particular occasion when leaven and honey constitute the appropriate substances. Following on the heels of the first prohibition of Seor and Vash, the Torah states the following, You may bring them to the Lord as an offering of first products, korban reshit. While leaven and honey are prohibited on the altar, they are permitted and even mandated as part of the mysterious and never again mentioned korban reshit. All of this should make us realize the inadequacy of Rambam's historical explanation. We need to explain not just the prohibiting of leaven and honey on the altar, but also the mandating of matzah as appropriate for the mincha procedure. We need to explain not just the unsuitability of leaven and honey for the altar, but also their appropriateness for korban reshit. Rambam's theory of pagan practices seems to fail these tasks. Shifting from a historical to a symbolic literary approach may help us resolve some of the problems raised above. According to this latter way of thinking, puzzling out the symbolic meanings of matzah, chametz, dvash, and korban reshit in the Bible constitutes the key to resolving the story of the meal offering. With this in mind, let us turn our attention back to Sefer Shemot and the entrance of matzah and chametz into the collective consciousness of the children of Israel. After reporting God's command to place the blood of the Paschal sacrifice on the doorways of the children of Israel, the Torah moves on to the proper procedure for consuming the sacrifice. They shall eat the meat that night with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. As Rashi points out, the language of the command to consume bitter herbs harks back to one of the Torah's original descriptions of the children of Israel suffering at the hands of the Egyptians. Back in Shemot, the Torah states that the Egyptians made their lives bitter, vayamaru at in other words, the consumption of bitter herbs constitute a reminder of the bitter suffering endured by the children of Israel at the hands of the Egyptians. So too, the consumption of unleavened bread. In phrasing the prohibition of chametz and the requirement to eat matzah, Sefer Dvarim refers to matzah as lechem oni, the bread of affliction. This means more than the fact that the actual object of matzah is low, humble, and afflicted. The stem ayin nun hey, meaning affliction, constitutes one of the key descriptive terms utilized in the first chapter of Shemot to describe the bondage in Egypt. Moreover, it is the exact term used by God in the covenant of the pieces to inform Abraham of the slavery and suffering of his descendants in a foreign land. In other words, at this point, matzah symbolizes the lowliness and affliction of a slave. As preparation for redemption, the children of Israel are required to be fully conscious of the state from which they are being redeemed. Matzah constitutes one of the tools for cultivating this slavery awareness. As we move along in the text of Shemot, the symbol of matzah undergoes a slow metamorphosis. Shortly after being told to eat matzah along with the paschal sacrifice, the children of Israel are told the following, And thus shall you eat, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, 
and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat in haste. The moment of redemption may arrive at any time. Sometime that night, God will redeem the children of Israel. They must be ready, and therefore must eat quickly. In other words, the first consumption of matzah constitutes not just a reminder of slavery, but an act of preparation for redemption, a transition in the national psychology and historical status of the children of Israel. As such, the first consumption of matzah also initiates a change in the symbolic meaning of matzah. It constitutes not just a symbol of slavery, but also a symbol of preparation for redemption. In fact, matzah symbolizes even more. Immediately after telling Moshe to inform the children of Israel regarding the procedure of the paschal sacrifice, the upcoming smiting of the Egyptian firstborn, and the sparing of the children of Israel and their redemption, God commands a commemorative holiday. The holiday involves eating matzah for seven days. Around the middle of this command section we find the following verse, And you shall guard the unleavened bread, for on this day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. The children of Israel are commanded to guard their matzah, ostensibly to prevent it from rising and becoming chametz. However, this is not the only place the stem shin mem resh, meaning guard or watch, appears in the story of Exodus. Later on, in the closing verse narrating the actual exiting from Egypt, the Torah refers to the night of the Exodus as a night of watchfulness, shimurim, of the Lord, in bringing them out from the land of Egypt. Just as God guarded and watched over the children of Israel, protecting them from the destroyer and the death of the firstborn, so too the children of Israel guard and watch over their matzah. In other words, the watchfulness required for the holiday of unleavened bread commemorates God's protection and his watching over their homes during the crucial moments of redemption. Matzah symbolizes more than just slavery awareness and redemption preparation. It also symbolizes the moment of redemption. This brings us to the most well-known reference to matzah in chapter 12. Upon the outbreak of the plague of the firstborn, Paro and the Egyptians, fearing the death of all of Egypt, hurriedly send away the children of Israel. The people picked up their dough before it could rise, quickly borrowed some gold, silver, and other finery from the Egyptians, and set off out of Egypt, journeying from Ramses to Sukkot. At this point, the Torah reports the following, And they baked the dough they brought out of Egypt into unleavened cakes, for it was not leavened, for they were driven out of Egypt, and they could not delay, nor had they prepared provisions. Matzah is the food of the post-redemption journey, eaten after leaving Egypt. To put all of this together, matzah symbolizes the various steps of the redemption from Egypt. Chapter 12 adds layer upon layer to the symbolism of matzah, thereby creating a complex symbol that spans the various stages of the redemptive process. From its beginnings as a symbol of slavery, matzah accompanies the children of Israel throughout each moment of their leaving Egypt, and slowly transforms into a symbol of the moment of redemption and the journey out of Egypt. While chapter 12 provides a rich and developed symbolism for matzah, such cannot be said for chametz. Leaven just doesn't play a central role in the storyline. At most, we can deduce that leaven constitutes the physical and legal opposite of matzah. There was no time for the dough to rise before the journey began, and leaven is strictly prohibited during the commemorative holiday. But physical and legal facts do not necessarily impart conceptual content. While logically, chametz should somehow symbolize the opposite of matzah, Chapter 12 leaves us in the dark as to what might be the symbolic opposite of a redemptive process spanning slavery to journey. This brings us back to the mysterious Korban Reshit mentioned in the Mincha narrative, which is the appropriate occasion to bring an offering of chametz. While the Torah does not explicate what precisely constitutes a Korban Reshit, most commentaries correlate it with the one time the Torah explicitly demands an offering of chametz, namely the Mincha Chadasha. Chapter 23 of Aikra details various offerings and holidays associated with the grain harvest cycle. 
At Pesach time, the children of Israel are required to bring the Omer offering, comprised of the first reapings of the grain harvest. This act of thanksgiving commences the beginning of the grain harvest and permits consumption of the new harvest's grain. After counting seven full weeks, the children of Israel must bring a mincha chadasha, a new grain offering. The Torah commands, From your homes you shall bring two loaves of bread to be a waved offering. Each shall be made of two-tenths of a measure of choice flour, baked after leavening. They are the first fruits to the Lord. The breads of first fruits, lechem habikurim, are waved before God. Sacrifices are brought, and the day is sanctified as a holiday. This, of course, is the holiday known as Shavuot, a name found only in one instance in Sefer Dvarim, and literally meaning weeks. According to Dvarim, from the time the sickle falls upon the grain, one counts seven weeks. At this time, one celebrates the holiday of weeks, Shavuot, in accord with all the Lord your God has blessed you. Either way, whether we think of it as the festival of Mincha Chadasha, the festival of the two breads, or the festival of weeks, Shavuot constitutes a thanksgiving festival celebrating God's bounty. This brings us back to Chametz. The leavening, rising, and fullness of the breads symbolizes the fullness of the harvest in God's blessing. The richness of the bread symbolizes the richness of the land and homes that God has granted to the children of Israel. All of this should help explain how Chametz comprises the conceptual opposite of Matzah. Whereas unleavened bread symbolizes the redemption process and the beginnings of the Israelites' journey, leavened bread symbolizes arrival, the land, and the end of the journey. This literary symbolism dovetails nicely with the physical characteristics of matzah and chametz. Whereas matzah is not yet risen, not yet full, and represents but beginnings, chametz has risen, has already become full, and represents ends. Factoring in dvash, our outstanding term, should lend further credence to the parallel between journey, land, and Pesach, Shavuot. As mentioned previously, the term dvash does not refer to bee honey in the Bible. Rather, it refers to sweet fruits and fruit products, most probably made from dates. This is best proven by the beginning of Dvarim chapter 26, colloquially known as Parashat Bikurim, the procedure for offering first fruits. The procedure breaks down as follows. Upon coming to the land granted by God, one gathers the reshit, the first of the fruit of the earth, of the land that the Lord your God has given you. Here we have another korban reshit celebrating the bounty of the land. After the individual's journey to the sanctuary, arrival in front of the priest, and profession that he has arrived in the land promised to the forefathers, the priest places the fruits before the altar. In the final stage of the procedure, the pilgrim recounts the story of the bondage in Egypt and God's redemption, and concludes, And he brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now, behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land, which you, Lord, have given me. He then bows before God in thanksgiving. The point should be clear. Like leaven, honey finds its place in an offering of first fruits. Like seor, dvash symbolizes the goodness of the land given by God. Like chametz, the sweet fruit stuff constitutes the completion of the story of the Exodus, the arrival at the end of the national journey of redemption. In sum, to put it in Jewish philosophical terminology, while matzah and pesach symbolize process and potentiality, Dvash, Chametz, and Shavuot symbolize realization and actuality. Alternatively, in the language of modern existentialism, while Matzah is about becoming, Seor and Dvash are about being. To close the circle, let us return to the meal offering and the problems raised earlier. The requirement to bake the Mincha as Matzah and the prohibition of offering Seor and Dvash upon the altar. 
Hopefully, the analysis above has demonstrated that leaven and honey are not somehow inherently or metaphysically deficient, insufficient for an offering to God. In fact, I would like to argue that their very fullness constitutes the heart of the matter. In what might be considered somewhat of a surprise, Sefer Vayikra opens with the rules for voluntary korbanot. God instructs Moshe as to the rules and procedure for a man of you who brings an offering to the Lord. The story of korbanot opens not with obligatory sacrifices, whether individual or communal, but with voluntary offerings, the individual's attempt to connect with God. By no coincidence, in this introductory segment, the stem kufresh bet, meaning offering, approach, coming close, and the like, appears seven times. In other words, from the very start, the doctrine of korbanot propounded by the Torah constitutes a means for approaching God. The sacrifice constitutes not so much God's need, but man's need, the means by which he offers his self up to God. In a Copernican turn on a pagan model of sacrifices, the object of the sacrifice becomes not so much the meal of the divine entity, but a representation of the person who offers the sacrifice and a symbolic means to bridge the human divine chasm. But what constitutes the appropriate means of approach to God? Should man represent himself with the symbols of satiated fullness, of destination, complete realization and full-fledged being? Or perhaps Sa'or and Vash, while appropriate for an act of thanksgiving, are wholly inappropriate for an act of penitential approach, for raising up on the altar. In their stead, the Torah mandates matzah, which symbolizes the redemption process. The Torah demands unleavened bread in all its humble lowliness, potential, and becoming. The poor man's bread constitutes the right means for approaching God. In the words of Tehillim, But I am poor and needy. O God, hasten to me. You are my help and my rescuer. O Lord, do not delay. Only the bread of affliction, not leaven nor honey, sends this message.